what's crackin' and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Natalie Gaynor, who is the principal second violinist of Houston Grand Opera and Houston Ballet Orchestras, and we'll be talking about portrait photography, in particular, musician headshots. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks for being here. Hey, Patty. I'm excited to be here with you. Yay! So we got to know each other because we ended up being roommates. I just kind of moved into the MacArthur House, the legendary MacArthur House. Yes. <laughs> and stumbled upon you being a roommate and we became friends from just running into each other in the kitchen or if I baked too much then I would force feed everyone in my house together. That was the best. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like we got to know each other more when I got to know Gabrielle Glass more and it was Mm -hmm. actually really great to reconnect during the pandemic for Gabby's wedding. So it was really fun to hang out with you then as well. Yeah, I loved loved that as well. You were such an amazing help during the wedding as well. Like I I remember you just like going around and helping with all these little tasks that needed to be done and Gabby appreciated it and all of us appreciated it so much too. Well, I mean, what are bridesmaids for, right? So Exactly. (laughs) So Natalie, I'm curious, what's your most insane performance story? Well, funny enough, one of the most insane performance stories was when I first got my job with Houston Grand Opera. I was finishing my master's degree at Rice at the time, and it worked out so that I could play starting in March with Houston Grand Opera as I was finishing my master's degree. And the first production that I played with the opera was Gotterdammerung, which is five and a half hours long and just crazy. So many notes, like 88 pages of just like pure black ink. So <laughs> as principal um, second as well too like you're as, reading yeah exactly so yeah so I hadn't really met anyone in the section yet and I came into the first rehearsal I remember it was March 20th 2017 and HGO likes to flip the two violin sections so the first violins are on the inside because oh. Patrick our music director likes having the first violin sound like come out of the pit more and apparently that lets their sound you know project and so my spot was technically where the concertmaster would be be sitting. Uh-huh. So that was pretty terrifying. And yeah. then, you know, to just be thrown into that. And a five and a half hour opera, you start at 6 p.m. and you're done at 11.30. And we had never ran the whole thing before the first performance. Because like, so the, what musicians union would allow that? Right. Well, you would have either you would have had to pay an insane amount of overtime, right. which we got for like all five of the performances. But what we did was there was a dress rehearsal for each one of the Ah. Uh, so we had three dress rehearsals. And then the first time we ran it completely was the first performance. My parents were actually there, which was really cool. So they got to see me play in the chamber orchestra for my last concert at Rice. And then my first performance at HGO. And then I think I graduated the next day. So it was like holy this action-packed weekend. But I felt like I was jet-lagged after playing the first performance. Like <laughs> I was so wired, but at the same time, like totally dead and zoned out at the same time after after the performance was over it was it was a very strange experience wow that's insane yeah, yeah. Okay, Natalie, are you now ready for the Spitfire questions? Oh man, I hope so. I'm okay. Ready. Okay. <laughs> Mahler or Bruckner? Mahler. Debussy or Ravel? Ravel. Cats or dogs? Dogs, for sure. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Appetizers or desserts? Mm, uh, desserts. <laughs> well, I guess it makes sense with the baking, right? Yes. Yeah. I did love your baking. Yeah. <laughs> Sparkling or still water? Sparkling. Fan favorite question, alternate universe musical instrument? Mm, harp. Oh, 
Why? I just think it's so elegant and beautiful. If only it were like smaller when you could transport it, it like shrunk. So in this alternate universe, it's like a sponge. Yeah, it could like shrink and contract and expand so that I could just like carry it in a little case and then expand (laughs) it when I get to where I want to (laughs) go. I'm sure actual professional harpists would wish the same thing. (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Pandemic guilty pleasure? Mm. I did watch a season of The Bachelor, Bachelorette. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the most recent ones? Oh, I watched Tasha's season, but the one with Claire and uh-huh. then the, when Tasha came in. I see. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so that, that was... one was sort of exciting. I think that was during the pandemic that that was being aired. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I actually, I mean, it's just such a staged, fakey show. Yeah. But you know, that's why it's a guilty pleasure. I thought Claire and whatever his name was were cute, but I don't know if they're even together anymore. But I thought Taisha did a good job with like picking her last four guys. And then she seems happy with the current one. God, I'm like forgetting all the names. That's okay. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) I don't think because I'm not that into it. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's fine. Favorite professor shout out? Paul Cantor. Yeah, you can't go <laughs> wrong with that shout out. We all love no. Paul Cantor. <laughs> no, he's he's the best. Yeah, most inspired musical hero of any genre? You know, the first one that comes to mind would be Hilary Hahn. Oh, I just love how generous she is with her community outreach and how she shares her process on Instagram. And I am just in awe of her technique and her ear and just I feel like she's just all around an amazing person. Mm -hmm. So that's really inspiring to me. So in addition to her just being this incredible musician and artist, I just love the way she takes advantage of her platform and really gives to the community through that. Yeah. Most transformative performance experience? I'd say the first time I played Mahler 1 was my freshman year at my youth orchestra, Midwest Young Artists in North Shore, Chicago. And I was in like the back of the second violins. And so everyone was way better than me. And I'm sure we, you know, looking back, we probably didn't sound amazing. But to my ears at age like 13 or 14, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. You know? So I think that was sort of a point where I really realized how cool this could all be. Yeah. And I sort of became more interested in really pursuing music as a profession. Desert Island piece of any genre? Mm, Pete Dance by Danish String Quartet. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. We can talk about this later, but I've been doing some porch concerts in Houston mm-hmm. during COVID, and some of the best stuff to play at porch concerts is Danish String Quartet stuff because it's just like rock and roll. Yeah. Pete Dance is not rock and roll. It's like the happiest thing you will ever play. Yeah. But I can just listen to that album on repeat and that one in particular is just like so fun and yeah. amazing. So I figured if I was stranded on a desert island, that might make me a little happier. Yeah. So Pete Dance comes from a collection arranged by the Danish string quartet called Woodworks. And it's a collection yes. of all these folk tunes from Scandinavia. So of course some Danish tunes, Swedish, Norwegian Norwegian Nor Norwegish? Norwegian no. Norwegian? Norwegian. Norwegian. I mean, it's Norwegian. And I'm like, what is what is my people's name? Uh, <laughs> what is? What is it? Right. Norwegian and all kinds of folk tunes from that region. And it's mm-hmm. really cool to see how they've reorchestrated it for string quartet and also incredibly useful for any performance. It's like a great encore to have. Oh, Audiences yeah. always say that we really love those pieces. So mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. They always want more of yeah. that. You can never play too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so shout out to Dana 
string quartet, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, Natalie, you did it. You made it through the campfire. Congratulations. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> Natalie, can you tell me about your musical origin story? When did you discover the violin? When did you know that that was your path and career? And mm-hmm. lead us down the steps of where you became this professional violinist that you are today. Yeah, so I started violin when I was six years old through my public school youth program. It was a district-wide Suzuki program, and my oldest brother had been playing cello for a few years before then, so I had really been listening to all the Suzuki songs for a while, and when I reached first grade, I told my mom that I wanted to start violin because it was just smaller. <laughs> I don't think there was a ton of thought put into like why I wanted to play violin in particular, but sure. you know, I didn't want to play the instrument that my brother played. So right. I started on violin and, you know, Suzuki method between violin and cello is actually quite similar for the first couple books. So I'd been hearing, you know, Twinkle Twinkle, Lightly Row, Oh Come Little Trill, you know, all the things. Yep. So the first year of lessons was actually really fast for me because the whole Suzuki method is you learn by ear. And so I'd been primed from this early age that I just knew all the songs. So it was like, you know, this perfect storm. Right. You know, from an early age, I had that confidence, like I'm sort of good at this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I was in that program from first till eighth grade. And then in seventh grade, I joined the Youth Orchestra Midwest Young Artists, which is in Lake Forest, Illinois. And that's sort of you know, exposed me to students my age that were better than me, so which I definitely needed because I was, you know, getting a little, little cocky. Yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I joined that and I was in like the third level orchestra. I was like, oh, you know, that's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> then I sort of realized like what the potential for everything is beyond just that little youth, you know, Suzuki district program. Yeah. So I was in MYA from seventh grade until my senior year of high school. And that was really great for me, just learning how to play in the really good and big orchestra before I got to high school. And yeah, just being around kids my age that were really good and better than me and that were really challenging me and everything. And then halfway through high school, I started studying with Gerardo Ribeiro, who's the violin professor at Northwestern, one of the violin professors there. I actually started with him halfway through my junior year. So sort of late. Yeah. Not that my, you know, I I definitely was working on like concertos and everything before then, but I think it took me until my junior year for me to sort of realize that this is what I want to do. And if I want to do it, I need to start like, really crack down for the next like year, yeah. you know, because I started with him in January and I had to submit pre-screens by December 1st of that same year. Mm-hmm. Right. So I really only had like 11 months with him. And in that 11 months, I went to Meadow Mount, which <laughs> that some people may know. Yeah. It's like this practice boot camp. They literally patrol you for five hours a day to make sure that you're practicing and they have chamber music and everything else on top of that. Can can I ask you a quick yeah. interjecting question? Yes. Why did you switch teachers? Was it because you decided that you wanted to pursue music or was it just a happenstance situation? It was sort of at that point where I realized if I wanted to pursue music, I sort of needed to get that perspective of like a college professor. Okay. So it was um, it was first that yeah. you wanted to pursue music and then... Or, yeah. I at least wanted that to be an option. And, you know, my teachers before were great. No shade or anything 
anything on them. But, you know, some of my friends had switched to or had been studying with Gerardo Ribeiro and I saw like the program that like technique and like all these concertos and stuff that like he was putting them through sure. and the and the improvement that they were making and I was like, oh, like that's what needs to happen that's the in next order to get. Yeah, it's like that's that next level of what's required to get into conservatory. Like I just had no idea and like both my parents aren't musicians so they don't really know that scene of like this is who you need to study with, this is how you need to apply, this is the rep that you need, like all this stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. and I think maybe before we were thinking of studying with him but then my dad had lost his job in the 2009 oh. crash. Oh, I'm sorry. So the idea of like asking my parents to spend all this money on my lessons when like my dad was out of work, I would have felt really guilty but then anyway, it worked out, you know, in that 11 months I prepared like all the rep that I needed, went to Meadow Mount, met some amazing friends who you've also interviewed many of them on the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> shout out Michael um, Shout out Michael Michael Turkel. Turkel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's one of them. <laughs> Gabby I met the next year uh-huh. right before we went to CIM. Right. So that's part of the story. Yes. Anyway, so one of the teachers that my youth orchestra director recommended, so this is Dr. D, he was our orchestra director at Midwest Young Artists. He recommended I apply for Paul Cantor at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And I was like, okay. Like, who's I know this person? Nothing. Sure. I don't know who that is. Yeah. I don't I don't know about, like, Cleveland. Like, I don't know what that is. You know, so I went around to all the different schools and had lessons with teachers. And I just remember my lesson with Mr. Cantor was just really eye-opening. He was actually asking me questions during the lesson Mm -hmm. like what do you think or what's new in this passage or getting me to actually be active in the learning process yeah and I was used to you know my teacher telling me what to do and I just like obeyed and did it right Mm -hmm. so with Mr. Canner I was like really caught off guard that he was asking me to make these decisions or make an informed decision or analyze the music and come to a conclusion because of what I see in the music and no other teacher had really done that so that really stuck out to me and then when I got into his studio I was ecstatic I mean he's one of the most sought out violin professors in at least America if not Canada and definitely I don't know internationally sure yeah yeah oh yeah I'm sure he's well known around the world he judges a lot of competitions I know and anyway so I was super excited all ready to go to Cleveland Institute of Music and then I go to Meadowmount again the next year and I remember like sitting at lunch outside and I get this email that was like new beginnings as the subject line from Paul Cantor. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he's like, Dear studio. Uh oh. I have been presented the opportunity to become professor of violin at Rice University in the following year. And, you know, we'll have time to discuss options for all of you. But, you know, this very open-ended email. And I was like, oh my god, I'm going to Cleveland and my teacher is leaving. Right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I, you know, I was sort of upset and like freaking out. But anyway, I get to Cleveland and we start sort of working together. And I'm like, I really need to keep studying with him. And so we started the process of applying for rice I had to apply for college again oh, you have to gosh. send in all the essays you know like I you we all had to get in academically yeah which and, is very difficult and <laughs> I mean I know rice I mean some people say it's the Princeton of the South I know it's a really high caliber academic school and mm-hmm. yeah you have to have at least
least a certain GPA. I can't remember what it was, but you know, you have to be yeah, book smarts too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, and like, I don't know what it is. There at might CIM, have been. But. Yeah. I think there was probably some influence that Mr. Kanner had over the admissions. And I'm sure he had some sort of, sort of deal with Rice saying like, I can bring this many students or something. Right. Right. But yeah. So I was at Cleveland for one year and then transferred as a sophomore to Rice and finished my three years of undergrad at Rice and then decided to stay for two more years of master's. And then I got my job with Houston Grand Opera and LA during my last year of my master's, which sort of worked out stupidly well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember when that um, happened so, too. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm really lucky and grateful for that. And Houston's been great. Like I never thought I, you know, I'm growing up in Chicago, purposely going to school in Cleveland, right? Sort of a Midwest girl. Yeah. So coming to Rice, I was sort of in shock because I'd never been to Texas before. And right. yeah, now I've been here since August of 2000. 12 so it's been like nine years yeah so you told me your most insane performance story which coincides with your beginnings at hgo what has that job been like for you it's been really great. I've learned a lot. Honestly, at Rice, I was not put in many leadership roles in orchestra, <laughs> which I think many people can relate with. So, you know, I was just thrust into this leadership position and sort of had to figure things out on my own. I did get some advice and counseling from some people that Mr. Canner had recommended me that I talked to before I started my job just on like, you know, what section members really appreciate in a section leader or how to go about that, right? Yeah. And deal with the stress. And one of the things that really stuck out to me, this was Elizabeth Adkins that I talked to. And she emphasized that people appreciate a clear leader in all forms, right? So cueing, like being very clear, but also in communication, like if there's a Boeing change, like make sure that it gets sent back. <laughs> or if there's something that requires more than just like talking to the stand behind you, just stand up and say something really quick. It'll take like three seconds, but that's way more efficient. And the people in the back can actually get the information right. and not just be like stranded or left in the dust. Because sometimes if we're in a really busy rehearsal, I'll find that like the information only gets sent like three stands back. Yeah. And then we have to start playing, right? So like it's not to anyone's fault in the section, right. you know, but sometimes the information doesn't get all the way back. So I've learned that sometimes just being bold and standing up and saying like, hey, seconds, like this, this, this here. Yeah. People really, really appreciate that just direct communication. And I think just being a kind person, being able to work with the other section leaders in a very diplomatic and we're all in this together and we're trying to find the, common the solution. Ground. We're trying to make, you know, yeah, just find common ground and like we have to do it efficiently because we don't have time to just be lollygagging and like, hmm, I don't know what we want to do here. Like the right? application like of this to... upbow here means this over, like none of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in sometimes that happens, but that needs to happen during an orchestra break or something. Right. My life is a lot of bowing changes because I have to adjust to the first violin. So the first violins do something and I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I got to change it. And then, yeah. So, so can I ask you uh, this? I totally understand. Yes, the fiddles have to play with the same bowing, but maybe for someone outside who might not understand the significance of that, what yeah. is that significance? But then my added topped question is, why does that matter sitting in a pit? Right. So, you know, one aspect of that is visual, 
right? It just looks cool if all the violins are doing sort of the same thing. It's like synchronized swimming. But yeah. yeah, exactly. But in a pit, technically that doesn't matter. But we still do that because there are, like you said, sort of implications of up bow or down bow. So, you know, an up bow, you're sort of going up into the air. It's a more lifted gesture sometimes, or an up bow can be easier to do a crescendo on, right. or an up bow will lead you to a pizzicato. Sure. So you're not doing a down bow and then have to do a retake to a pizzicato. Right. So there's a lot of practical ways for, you know, an up bow or a down bow is maybe more forceful, or you can use that weight at the frog to really bring something out, you know, just stuff like that. In like pianissimos, you might start at the tip because the weight is less at the tip and it's way easier to sneak in at the tip than at the heavy part of the frog. Right. So yeah, there's definitely all these practical reasons for doing up bow or down bow or these different patterns. And having that match. Sections. Right. Having that match. And having it match between the sections. Exactly. Right. So if the violas are doing down, up, down, up and we're doing down, down, up, down, we might have different articulations because of the way that we're attacking the bump, 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 bump. Right. That really so works. that's why we have to keep it pretty consistent overall. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for answering. Just to clarify for maybe some people who might not know the inner workings of string sections and also leadership yeah. roles. Yeah, I have found relating to just the leadership roles or circling back to that, I've sort of discovered that my job is like 70% percent communication just communicating with the other principals in the orchestra the conductor and then transferring all that information to my section and then you also just have to play well and be counting that's another like 20 <laughs> yeah. percent it's just counting because if i come in wrong yeah. and it's a piece that people don't know that is totally my fault yeah maybe the only thing that wouldn't derail the entire section would be like nutcracker right like i can come in totally wrong on nutcracker and my section will just be like what is she doing? Like, you know, <laughs> because they've played it 200 more times than I have right. or something. So, right. yeah. yeah, it's really interesting it's, being in the leadership position. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. different than what you might imagine when you begin a music career in any sort. Definitely. The and they level. don't really teach you that in school, honestly. Yeah. I mean, um, I think it's just it's difficult to do so because you don't have a set conductor. Well, unless you're Larry Radcliffe. But yeah. <laughs> typically speaking, you know, relatively you have a rotating conductor of some sort, maybe one that's more consistent, but you especially have a rotating leadership in principal strings, at least mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about here. Definitely. So I feel like with the rotatingness, people would not respect as much like some person that was just thrown into principal like that rotation to be like standing up and telling the section what to do. Yeah, I just think people wouldn't respond well to that versus, you know, someone that's like, that's their role. And like, you just have to do what they say. Right. Sort of. So another vestige of my previous question, what is mm -hmm. life like playing in the pit? I like it, actually. I mean, we're really far down there. So we can't really see the audience. Mm -hmm. We can sort of maybe see a couple people in the balconies. We can't really see on stage unless you're in like on the wall of the pit. So sometimes it actually works out in opera because they flip the violin sections and I'm where the concertmaster would sit. Right. So it sometimes works out that I can like see part of the opera, which is really fun. But yeah, we are definitely in close quarters. We're smushed way more than any normal symphony orchestra would be. But 
Yeah, I don't mind it necessarily. I would like sometimes to maybe be on the stage and actually be the main event instead of like, oh, the singer's on stage or the main event or the ballerinas on stage are like what the people come to see. Sure. But yeah, in terms of like just physically being in the pit, I don't necessarily mind it. But yeah, we get to play a lot of amazing rep and especially in opera. Ballet rep is not always the most fulfilling. Sure. <laughs> There's a lot of boom chucks and um, very slow potadas. Sure. That's a potada is like a, a pair. Um, so a duet. Usually like a, a duet, yeah. And usually it's like this very schmaltzy, slow, romantic thing. And the music can just get luxurious. You know, <laughs> and you're just like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Waiting, waiting for the ballerina to like take her next step because the conductor, at least for ballet, the conductor has complete control. Oh, I didn't over, even know that. Over the tempo. Well, the conductor is the only link between us and the stage. Right. Right, because we can't like follow you can't their, see the dancer's them. footsteps. Yeah. yeah, we can't see their footsteps, like, and we're not gonna, you know, visually trained enough to know exactly when their footsteps should be here and like adjust us, right? Right. You know, but that's different for opera because we can hear the singing and you, you get into that mode of like chamber music almost. T totally. But yeah, so for ballet, you know, in those really slow passages, we have no idea when that next thing is going to come so you're sort of just like in this really raised tense position yeah. that you try not to I remember Giselle oh, was I mean the worst that is I think a the fun most ballet to watch though but I have seen I'm it. sure yeah. I'm sure it is but it was I think the most painful thing I've ever played Aww. physically painful because everything is so slow yeah. that you can't release any tension mm -hmm. you're just in this like heightened tense position waiting for the next step and yeah well, I'm Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's maybe the opposite of like Goddardamarung story. Right. What would you say is the best and the worst parts of being in the pit? Yeah, I think being in the pit, you know, you're playing different rep than you ever have. Mm -hmm. Like all of our training at school is mostly symphonic stuff. Right. Besides, you know, the two or three operas that I played at Rice. Right. That part is really amazing because you're getting to play, I mean, opera stuff is just the best. Yeah. It's so cool. I, I love it. So, so yeah, I think just being able to play rep that most people might not be able to play or it's the first time that most of us are playing this thing. It just makes it so exciting. I suppose you don't really think about that as much, but with a symphony, yeah, the repertoire rotates quite frequently compared to an opera because you can yeah. only really produce four, maybe five operas a season. We usually do six, six? plus a Christmas opera. Actually. Okay, yeah. so even then, symphony just, they churn out programs almost every week or so, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's a very oh, yeah. different... You know, I think the Met, they do La Boheme every year. Sure. And they probably do Carmen every other year yeah. or, you know, so the I most think... Most popular, with, with, yeah. Yeah, with, with the Met, they definitely will do more repetition. But I don't know if you could ever get tired of playing La Boheme. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure. Like, it is just... Maybe that should be your Desert best. Island piece on top of... Maybe, yeah. Boheme is... 
it just flows like it just keeps going and turning and swirling and it's so fun the worst part about being in the pit specifically the wortham center pit there are a lot of um temperature fluctuations oh no well especially for opera the singers like it very cold okay so they're just like pumping cold air i don't think they can like regulate where the air goes necessarily right so to get the stage the temperature that the singers want the air into the pit is like freezing cold and then for ballet the dancers want it very warm right so that their muscles don't tense up sure so for ballet a lot of times we're like sweating And that's just what it has to be. But yeah, we actually have like temperature regulations in both of our CBAs. Wow. Collective bargaining agreements. For that Um, very reason. And I feel like every single year we have like multiple violations. (laughs) Because either it's like below 68 degrees for opera. So it's like 67 degrees in the pit. That's cold. Yeah. Or it's above for ballet. I think the max is 78. Oof, that's hot. Or at 78 degrees, the men can take off their jackets. I think that's even the regulation. So it's like, it could even be 80, technically, but then the men can, like, not be fully clothed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they have a shirt under, so it's not like they're totally... They do. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just been sort of an annoying thing. Yeah. You know, but if that's, like, the worst thing ever, then I would say that that's not horrible. Yeah. Fair enough. But I'm sorry that you still have to suffer through temperature. And, of course, for your instrument, too. That's, like, doesn't make it happy either. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, and especially for, like, the woodwinds. I feel like their instruments are way more sensitive so yeah, it affects intonation yep. and all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. So so I know during the pandemic that HGO and the ballet had to be on pause because of course a lot mm-hmm. of the arts organizations were. So right. what were you doing during that time? You sort of alluded to it with the Pete dance, but what are your upcoming right. projects now that part of the world is opening up again? So we did not do much with the ballet. I think we had one little recording session of Ina Kleina in the whole year. Opera, we did have a fair number of digital recording projects that were released on the website, mm-hmm. um, hgo.org, which was really cool. We did this animated Hansel and Gretel. Oh, so we cool. had this giant recording session and then the singers recorded separately from us because they were really careful about COVID and making sure that we weren't near singers and everything. But that was released and that was a really beautiful. It was sort of like a movie yeah anyway so there were you know a fair amount of digital productions but other than that that was about it for opera and ballet so we have actually been doing a lot of porch concerts the past year my boyfriend spencer and i sort of spearheaded this concert series called tunes on 10th in the houston heights area that started because the host her name's margaret she invited me to play on her porch so at the beginning of covid she's like i want to like host musicians and you know come play on my porch and I'll do all the advertising and invite people and whatever so I was like okay I'll prepare like a recital in six days I guess (laughs) (laughs) you know and like I had not been doing a ton of practice right because the beginning of COVID you know like everyone was just sort of you know I don't know what to do with my life right stage right so I prepared some music and was playing the concert Halfway through, it started downpouring rain. Oh, wow. But I had invited Spencer with me, my boyfriend. And, you know, we were talking to Margaret after. And she was like, hey, like, why don't you come back next week and finish your program? Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to have Spencer play some stuff on horn. Mm-hmm. And he can accompany me on some other stuff. So we sort of finished and did, like, another show the next week that was, like, it was a great turnout. And then we were, you know, 
we just sort of started talking with Margaret about she wanted to keep doing this and hosting musicians. And she's like, I don't know who to ask, right? right. And we were like, well, we're happy to like recommend our friends, mm-hmm. right? Because we're friends with like all the best musicians in Houston that are all out of work right now, right? Right, totally. That became a really awesome like partnership with Margaret because she was just so gung-ho about having a concert like every week or every other week mm-hmm. and just supporting the musicians. And she would make flyers. She like found my headshot on my website without me even like having to send her. Sure. <laughs> she was like, here's your flyer. And I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> and she would like post on Nextdoor. She'd like stuffed flyers in people's mailboxes. Wow. So it just became this amazing thing for like musicians to perform mm-hmm. when we don't have any work and people to see live music during COVID, but in a safe environment because you're outside, people can be masked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were doing tip jars with like either cash or Venmo. So if you didn't want to have any touch at all, you could just do Venmo or Zelle or, you know, to support the musicians that were out of work. And yeah, it just became this great thing. And we even started an Instagram page. Oh, wow. It now has like 13 or 1400 followers. That's amazing. Yeah. We were getting like two or 300 people at shows. Wow. The other amazing thing is that she lives on a corner. Oh, okay. In this amazing Victorian house with a corner porch. So musicians can perform there and then people can be on Either her side. corner yeah, and then on all of the blocks surrounding as well. So there's room for so many people to actually distance properly. Yeah. So it's not a super spreader event. Like we didn't want, you know, anyone to get sick because of these concerts. Of so not, yeah. it was just this perfect place that a lot of people could gather, but in a safe way and support out-of-work musicians and have an amazing evening Yeah, when you have like nothing else to do, right? Because everyone was just home for so long. What a wonderful project that came out of such a horrible time. Yeah. And And it's also not like necessarily only for COVID, Mm -hmm. right? Like this can continue when we're back at work. We probably won't have to do like the sob story as much. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, people loved it and I think people want it to keep going. So we're hoping to, you know, have even more groups come and you should come to Houston. Well, sure. I would love to. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) maybe if I'm around for Kinetic or something, let's do it. Yes, actually. Yeah. Let's chat. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be fun. Okay. Natalie, is this a good time to take a break? Let's do it. Okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So, Natalie, I feel like most people would identify you as either violinist and photographer. How did you get into photography? I just want to get the tea on the whole beginnings of that. Yeah, so that was sort of a more gradual process than violin. Mm -hmm. I'd always sort of been into like taking pictures for fun and sort of exploring that, especially when traveling. And then my dad has also been into cameras and photography. Okay. Um, So I think for Christmas... My freshman year of undergrad, I was gifted a Nikon DSLR, which is one of those, you know, the hefty cameras that look really intimidating. Yeah. You know, and just sort of started playing around with that from there. And then, you know, when I was hanging out with friends, we would just sort of experiment around and take pictures of each other and figuring out what the camera could do. Sure. So lenses are really important for portrait photography, especially. Okay. And you really need what's called like a prime 
lens, which has a very wide aperture, which is like the opening of the lens. Okay. So the bigger the opening of the lens, the more you can get that blurry background, mm -hmm. which is what people think is so cool in like portrait photography or like when you see a picture that looks like that, you're like, oh, that looks so beautiful, right? Yeah. So that's how you get that sort of effect is you get one of these like prime lenses that has a really wide aperture. So I got what's called sort of like the Nifty 50 lens. And Nifty 50 is just like sort of a cheap prime lens, but it's good and does the job and looks great. Yeah. So once I got that, then that's when sort of the portrait stuff was happening more. And then, you know, I came to Rice and I would just take pictures for my friends and they would upload them as their profile picture on Facebook sure. and tag me, right? Yeah. So yeah, it sort of just became like this small little community of people at Rice that were like, oh, I saw you take someone's picture. I really need a headshot for this festival or something. Can you do a quick session? I was like, okay, cool. I ended up also taking a digital photography class through the Rice Media Center, okay, which was really cool. And that's where I learned how to do all the editing and stuff in Photoshop, Photoshop and Photoshop Lightroom. Room. Okay. So Lightroom is sort of the program that most, it's like more of the photographer's editing software. And then if you want to do like really intense edits or you're like a graphic designer, that's when you go into Photoshop. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful program and I'm still really learning how to use Photoshop itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, primarily I use Lightroom for all of my edits. It's sort of a subset of Photoshop mm -hmm. by Adobe. Yeah. So that was really helpful for me to sort of just get a grasp on like how I can organize all my pictures and make them look really good in post-processing. And yeah. So then it's sort of just became this thing where I would take my friends' headshots and then colleagues' headshots or fellow peers at Rice. It's definitely like gone up and morphed from there. Yeah. But I really like it and I think it's a good niche for me because, you know, I am a musician. So you're not going to, if I'm taking your picture, you're not going to get one of those like stock photos. Oh my God. Where like they're holding it in like a super horrible way yeah. or like, right? So the, you can tell that the photographer doesn't know how to guide the person and the person in the photo either doesn't know how to pose or doesn't has never touched this instrument before right um <laughs> i can tell you so, i when i first joined the quartet we did some photography and some of the shots came out right but the way that she was posing me with my cello i was like i've never touched my instrument like this ever and then i yeah. saw the results of them and i was like oh my god like please never post this on your anywhere like yeah, it makes me look yeah, like yeah. i don't know what i'm doing yeah exactly yeah so that's what i am totally trying to avoid yeah and it's sort of a nice fit for me that I I can just say like, hey, if it's an instrument that I'm not as familiar with, like a, I don't know, bassoon or something, sure. it's like, okay, show me how you might hold this in rehearsal. Yeah. And then they'll go to this like pose and I'm like, oh, that looks great because it's natural and you look comfortable with it and you're relaxed and yeah. right. So I try not to do like these crazy hokey poses. <laughs> Unless it's something that you can sort of make artistic without it seeming cheesy or fake or something. Because, right. yeah, you do want to try to branch out and, like, give people some interesting shots that aren't just like, here's my violin, like, across my body, right? Right. A lot of shots are like that because for a standard headshot, you don't want anything too crazy necessarily. Right. Unless maybe you do want I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> No, but typically um, you need something that's just your face with your instrument that's, you know, it's not going to be too eye-catching because it's going to be in a program letter or something where you know you're against yeah. a lot of other people and yeah you don't want it to stick out in a bad or awkward or like uncomfortable way right it should stick out in like that person looks great or they look legit or that's a great headshot mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so my job
job is to make people look legit and light them correctly so that like the light on their face is really flattering and they look their best and that they're comfortable and that they have a natural smile Mm -hmm. too and you know there's so many things that you have to be worrying about during a shoot Mm -hmm. because in addition to like all my settings on my camera making sure that you know my shutter speed and my aperture and my light sensitivity are correct and I'm getting the proper exposure I need to think about framing right I need to think about the lighting where's the light coming from Uh right and if it's flattering for their face I need to think about if their left side or their right side of their face is the better side of their face oh my god sorry (laughs) without telling them (laughs) well not necessarily because sometimes I'll be like oh like I really like this angle on you like let's do like more of that yeah but yeah you like make these little assessments of like you know what works better for some people and most people one eye is bigger than the other sure and that's another thing you usually want to have the bigger eye more forward if you have the smaller eye in front it looks really weird Like, <laughs> I've and I've taken some pictures like that, and I'll look back at them, and I'm like, that looks so weird. And then they just adjust the angle of their face, and I'm like, oh, like, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> you also have to worry about your focus, and you have to make sure that your focus is on their front eye mm-hmm. and not on their back eye, because that also looks really weird. Yeah. Unless they're, like, totally straight on to you. Yeah. Yeah, so in addition to, like, all that stuff that you have to be thinking about, you have to be posing them. Mm-hmm giving them ideas, making them feel comfortable, making it fun, you know, giving advice when needed and being chill. and Like location? There's all these things that you have to, yeah, like uh, just, well, and then deciding on location, moving around within that location based on where the sun is Mm -hmm. or where the light is going to be flattering. So yeah, I always am searching for like an indirect bright light. Mm -hmm. If you just have like the sun beating down on your face, especially from above, you're going to get these like shadows under your eyes, under your nose, like under your mouth. It's going to look really weird on your face. It's basically sort of like if you had like a soft box, which is just this like a strobe light with that big white like sheet over it, because that creates this really beautiful panel of light that just like evenly lights your whole face and people always look good in that kind of light. So when I'm outside, because most of my shoots are outside, but You can actually see in the back of my video here, I have these two little studio backdrops now in my apartment. So I'm, I want to also get into like indoor studio photography a little bit as well, you know, just to have that. I need to buy some of my own lights and lighting setup and that's a whole other thing. Yeah. So when I'm outside in a shoot, I'm always looking for something that sort of imitates that soft box effect. So actually if you're shooting on like an overcast day, Mm -hmm. it's really beautiful because then all of the clouds in the sky are like lit up but white and then the light on your face is really nice and flattering. Mm -hmm. Or you can have the sun reflecting off of a white wall. Mm -hmm. So the sun will be like directly on a white wall or something, but then if you're facing that white wall, you're getting that that bounce back. Or if it's like sunset and the sun is sort of off in this corner but it's not directly shining on your face it's sort of this like aura of light sort of off in this part of the sky that can be also a nice place to sort of look in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just so many things to juggle during a shoot yeah. while trying to make this person feel comfortable. comfortable and awesome and that they are looking great and that the shots that I'm getting are awesome. Like, yeah, you know, right. sometimes things aren't working mm-hmm. and you have to, you know, sort of have the pride or not have the pride and just sort of be like, okay, this isn't working. Like we need to move on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like be okay if that's the case. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just so interesting. I mean, how does your head not explode in that moment? I mean, I, I'm making a joke, but. 
It sounds <laughs> like you're you're trying to micromanage so many little small things at once. Yeah, it's it's a lot to think about for sure. When we did photos of you and a group, yes, possibly I wanted like to, in the sky space that's at Rice. Right. Yes, you we because I've seen you use that picture a lot. Yes, thank you. That was <laughs> no, I love that picture, but that was sort of funny because I think you were just playing and I was like testing out settings or something yeah. on my camera. Like I think you were we were waiting for the group. Or, I don't know if I'm telling the story right, but maybe we were waiting for the group and you were just like had your instrument out like playing something. Yeah, I was playing and some I was just, like, sort of. Yeah. yeah, and I was just sort of like above you. Testing testing out settings and I got this like awesome shot of you yeah it's great and I think I took like two or three pics and I was like oh that's good yeah <laughs> so sometimes it works out great and sometimes you have to work a little harder to get like the shot that you want yeah but yeah that's a great shot of you I, I really like that yeah one. me too I, <laughs> again thank you <laughs> So what kind of expense goes into all the equipment that you have to do these photo shoots? Well, it is quite a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I have also personally made the choice to buy some very nice equipment that maybe I don't necessarily need, but I justify it in certain ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually just bought some new, like I redid my whole camera outfit recently oh. in the last few months. So Canon came out with this new system of cameras that are what's called mirrorless cameras. So a DSLR camera is actually one that has a mirror in it that goes up and down and goes ka-chunk when you take a picture. Right. So these new cameras don't have that in it. It's all digital. And there's multiple benefits to that. First of all, you can make the shutter silent. Mm -hmm. So you can take pictures without during a concert, noise. So during a concert, it could be especially valuable. So I'm not this huge distraction right. to the performers, right? So that's like one reason that I really wanted it. Another reason is that there's infinite focus points available on the sensor. So on my old camera, you could only focus in like this little middle part of the frame mm -hmm. on this new camera, the mirrorless camera, you can focus on literally any point within the frame. So that's cool. Yeah. And the biggest reason that I wanted this camera is that it actually has eye detection in it. So the camera itself, you can put it on this special focus setting where it'll track your subject's eye. Okay. And so instead of manually having to like adjust my focus point, it, the camera will do it for me. Yeah. And it has literally changed the way that I do photo shoots because I'm not worried about that huge aspect anymore. Because mm -hmm. I was really struggling with, like, sometimes I would be focusing on something or I would, like, miss it a little bit. Or the, I, I would move or... And I think my old camera was just, like, a little bit less reliable in general with focusing. So even if I was on the point, yeah. I would find myself taking, like, three or four pictures of the exact same frame because I was so nervous that it was... Going to be off. Not going to be in focus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I really felt like I was sort of battling my old equipment a little bit. So this new camera has really changed that for me. And the eye detection is just, it's just crazy. It's so cool. Well, that certainly eliminates some of the elements, as you're saying, of what psyche is going on during a photo shoot for you. Yeah, exactly. And I felt like before, I honestly was so stressed out during shoots and not always enjoying it or letting myself be as creative as I wanted to be because I was just so worried about getting this focus in this right place, right? But now I can just turn on this setting and I just feel so much more free yeah. to just sort of play, like literally play around with it. Yeah. And I find that I'm getting better images because I don't have that huge constraint that I used to. 
Yeah. To me, that's so similar to upgrading your instrument. You talking about taking multiple frames, your instrument, meaning the camera, would sometimes just like not perform as it should. But then upgrading to a better instrument is more consistent and performms as it should, or if anything, alleviates some more stress, like does some of the work for you. Yeah, exactly. So definitely related to that. You know, but I did feel a little guilty, like spending this much on a new camera because it's like, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the problem, right? Like, there's this. I'm laughing because, like, no, like you're a great (laughs) photographer, right? But like, this goes through like every musician's head. Oh, for sure, yeah. But you know the saying, like, every bad carpenter blames his tools. Yeah. Right. So I was like, well, maybe I just like I'm doing it wrong. Like, maybe I'm bad at focusing or something. (laughs) But then when I got this camera, like everything changed, and I was like, oh. It's not actually me. Right. Right, right, right. (laughs) At least in like that aspect of like my frustration. Sure. Well, and the thing too is that it's going to unlock other creative outlets, as you're saying, like Mm -hmm. of what is in store for future portraits that you do. Definitely. Yeah. I now am like actually excited to do shoots. Yeah. I'm trying to be more experimental and like push my boundaries and like try to get interesting framings and just more creative shots. And I still have you know, so much to learn and I can always get better. So I'm just excited to like have this machine that I know is awesome. And like, this isn't going to be the thing that holds me Absolutely. Right. Can we do a small Natalie Bragg corner? Sure. (laughs) I don't know what that means. So who have you photographed? Who have been your subjects? Like, I know one of them is Norman Fisher. Yes, I have photographed Norman Fisher. That photo appeared in Strings Magazine. (gasps) Amazing! Yes. Congratulations! Um, Thanks, that was cool. I've also photographed Richie Hawley Mm -hmm. and his um, pianist. Yeah, so Richie Hawley is the clarinet professor at Rice. He actually called me to do some videography work for his album that actually just got released on like all these streaming platforms you should check it out so it's this clarinet and piano video so he wants to start this like new record label where sort of changing the scene of how musicians can release their work okay so he recorded these pieces with his pianist and this was at studi concert hall at rice and he had rented all this crazy equipment like videography equipment Mm. and he had me on the camera that was on this moving wheeled stabilized thing. Yeah. So I was getting more of like the moving creative shot framing stuff. Yeah. So that was really cool for me because, you know, I don't have any experience in videography, right, honestly. Right. But he's like, I don't care. All I want is like awesome shots, sort of like good framing. Yeah. Right? And he called me because he had seen that I do photography and can like frame a picture maybe, right? Yeah. So yeah, that is a really cool release and everyone should check that out. It's available on iTunes and all sorts of streaming platforms as well. But it's like, yeah, like a video performance that you can purchase. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I've photographed probably every single one of my friends Mm -hmm. and their headshots. Mm -hmm. I've also done a lot of photography for the Shepherd School of Music. Mm -hmm. I have been asked to photograph a lot of rehearsals for, you know, Shepherd brochures and stuff. So I'll come into like a chamber music 
like rehearsal or when they were doing sort of small group chamber orchestra stuff, mm -hmm. I'll come in and do like a two or three hour session. And those pictures have been, you know, in the Shepherd School calendar, in the brochures, like on the websites. And I also did a session of the building itself, mm -hmm. photos just of the building, just for sort of background website photos, brochure. Yeah. So that has been also really fun for me to see like an official institution yeah. using my pictures in a professional and like cool well, way that is promoting them. Yeah. And like the number of students that are going to see your photos too. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. And then most recently I did the Shepherd graduation shoot. Mm -hmm. uh, so Pippa, who is a violinist, mm -hmm. right? Shout out she to now me. works in admin. Yeah. yeah hi, Pippa. <laughs> <laughs> she now works in admin at Shepherd. She contacted me. She actually contacted me for all of these. But the most recent one was for graduation this year. And because they usually have a graduation reception, but they, of course, didn't do that this year with COVID, in substitution, she asked me to come in and take pictures of all the graduating people or whoever wanted to sign yeah. up. So yeah, I came in on two separate days and people could sign up on a list and they had, you know, like a five minute slot. Some people had more time, like if there wasn't someone that signed up right after them. So we actually had 10 minutes to take some pictures. And I had some people show up in like ball gowns and, oh, wow. you know, really nice, you know, ready for a headshot. Yeah. And then I had some people show up in their graduation gowns. And yeah, so we got a really good variety of stuff. And then if people wanted more than the number of shots that Shepard was like providing. So I think Shepard paid for three sure. pictures each. And if people wanted more than that, they just like purchased them. Separately. Um, directly from yeah. me. So, yeah, so that was a really cool project for me, too. Because, yeah. you know, just being back at Shepherd and, but also by this point, I'm, I don't really know many of them. Sure. Like, I've been gone from Shepherd long enough that most of the people graduating, I, I like, didn't know. Hadn't met before. So that was also a little weird. But, but kind of fun to see, like, the recent graduating class, because you never know when mm -hmm. you're going to run into them again, too. The music yeah, world exactly. is, yeah. Yeah. So Pippa was just saying that she might want to have this be a recurring thing and almost just offer it as like sending you off into the world of music with a headshot. I mean, right? Like just as professional development, like you, everyone needs a headshot I mean, in the music world and so many people don't have that's one. What that's what is so crazy <laughs> to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's surprising how many people are just like, oh, I haven't, my last headshot was when I was like 17 or something. It's like, come Girl, on. come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I know. You need a headshot yeah. that's not taken with like an iPhone, right? Right. Well, I mean, again, as you say, in our friend circle or in just our colleague circle, like I feel like any and everyone has at least one headshot oh, by yeah. you, which is amazing. And it makes complete sense to me because knowing you and knowing your personality and like, like the proof is in the pudding sometimes too, like with mm -hmm. your photos, like you take really good shots. And when I see a picture of Gabby, for instance, and you you took a photo mm -hmm. of hers, I see her personality come through the photo. And I think that that's yeah. something Aww. that is so, that's hard to to capture like that's something unique about your photography that I just wanted to share oh, yeah so I appreciate that yeah so it, it makes complete sense yeah what's the most fun that you've ever had on a shoot I love you know photographing good friends 
But just anyone that has a fun vibe or you can tell that they're actually enjoying themselves yeah. as we're doing yeah. it. Not to say that anything negative about anyone else, but you know, if they're if they're just sort of like rocking it and like giving me like different stuff to work mm-hmm. with, then I can really like feed off of that too and be like, Oh, like let's even go further further with that yeah. or something. So it's even more collaborative in that way. It's like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I don't mind at all like telling people how to pose and you know, everything, but it's really fun if someone comes in and just like sort of knows what they're doing a little mm-hmm. bit. Not even like professional model status, but I always enjoy if someone sort of like knows what they want and like they're just rocking it and we just like play off of each other yeah so you're inspiring me yeah, to, like i need to like practice my voguing and like <laughs> try to get <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's also super fun if like you just try to get that person's personality out of them yeah. so i feel we'll like see. if someone is usually just like a super smiley laughy person mm-hmm. you don't try to do like the serious like smizing vogue shots because that's not gonna look natural to who they are yeah right so then in that case, like, you're just, like, smiling and laughing the whole time and, like, having a great time. So, yeah, there's fun in every shoot. What's the most fulfilling part of being a photographer? I really enjoy, like, making people look their best mm-hmm. and giving them something that they are proud to put out on their website or proud to share that is, like, representative of them. You know, like a headshot that, you know, really shows all of their best qualities. So that's fulfilling for me because I feel like I'm giving them something like really useful that will help them in their professional life and also can make them feel good and confident and they have no no second thoughts on just being like, yeah, I have a great headshot. Like here it is. Right. 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 They're not worried about like, oh, is this good enough or something. I also really like the post-processing editing part. It's sort of like my zen oh, okay. that I get into and especially like the retouching and stuff. That's also sort of a funny part. Just how I retouch. Like, I get really, really close in on people's faces. (laughs) I've seen you do some of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. People probably don't want to realize, like, how, like, close I am on, like, their their pores and their zits and everything. But, yeah, like, the retouching process is really fun. Just, like, smoothing out skin. But I try to do it in a way that's not, like, you don't want to notice. Yeah, it's not completely airbrushed or anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't like that vibe at all. Yeah, so I try to make it look natural. Like, you leave the moles, right? Because that's a permanent part of someone's face. But you eliminate the zits or the redness or the... Whatever is, like, something that's sort of temporary, you can fix. Or, you know, flyaway hair, you can tame that down. Yeah. Yeah, so you just... You're giving someone an image that's like, this is the best version of yourself and you look awesome and... Go forth. Yeah. Share it with the world. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any remaining thoughts that you wanted to share about your photography and your experience with us? I think headshots and photography can be underappreciated. Mm-hmm. And if you get a good photographer and someone that you vibe well with and someone that matches your style, that's also very important. Because mm-hmm. some people might see my pictures and be like, oh, I want something a little different, right? And then, you know, go with a, a different photographer. Yeah. So I think that's really important to, like, if you are interested in getting headshots or portraits done or wedding photography. Mm-hmm. That's an industry. Business. Yeah, that's a whole industry. And 
Those photographers are incredible, actually. Yeah. But yeah, so really like making sure that you like the photographer's vibe mm-hmm. and that it matches what you want. Because if you see a photographer and you're like, oh, I can probably ask them to do something different or like edit differently, it's not going to be like what you want. Yeah. So like really look at a photographer's past work because that's just really representative of the kind of stuff that you're going to get out of your own shoot. That's great advice. That would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing and also being just an amazing photographer for not only me, but for so many of us musicians and being the representative musician headshot person. Because again, it is so important for our professional development. Yeah. Hit Natalie up if you're interested in a headshot. Oh, yeah. Okay. Can I ask you two final questions? Yes. What is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career? I would tell myself that hard work beats out natural talent or whatever is perceived as natural ability Mm. in the long run, because that's sort of been what's worked out for me. Yeah. You know, I like worked my butt off in school. Yes, you did. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There were always people better than me, which is great. Like you want to be with people that are better than you. But sometimes you find that the people that are amazing when you first get to school, they either burn out or they don't know how to work hard because they've just always been great. Mm -hmm. But if you know, if you learn how to work hard, you're going to get exactly to that level or even like past that. And it's totally attainable. Like everything is attainable if you figure it out and know how to work hard. This is a side story. I guess. But when I came into CIM, my first studio class, one of my studio mates, she played a full concerto and she had just like won the Indianapolis violin. Oh, stupid. And I was like, as in like, that's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know how you did that. Like that seems impossible, right? Like I had no grasp of like how you could even possibly attain that level. But you know, like over the years of being in school and like figuring out how to practice, how to work hard, how to figure out things on the violin, you figure out how people do things. Mm -hmm. And if you just work hard enough, you can probably do that too. Yeah. I think it's also great that you're saying that because I think a lot of times it's perceived in our field that we have the natural talent and therefore we are great. At least mm-hmm. in from the outside looking in. That it's, yeah, it's like, oh, you're so talented. Like we are born right? this way and then that's yeah. what we just did. In the, and yeah, I, so I, I think mm-hmm. it's great to acknowledge all the hard work and tears and blood and sweat that go into actually becoming great. It's not born yeah. great. Right, exactly. Yeah. My second question, as we enter a post-pandemic world, what elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue and what would you like to shed? If I can jump in, I think your answer for the first part are these porch concerts. Yeah, definitely. Is there something else Uh, though? Yeah. Yeah, I think what I was thinking was sort of just porch concerts and also with that I was doing so much more solo music than I normally have ever played Mm -hmm. and it really strengthened my playing and my confidence and everything and I think it changed how I played so I think continuing to put myself out there and making myself do sort of solo performances Mm -hmm. is just great for my playing and I want to continue doing that and also sort of related to that is just learning how to speak in public to a crowd (laughs) At the beginning of this, I was absolutely terrified to just speak, right? Like, I could play violin for a crowd, no problem. But to actually speak and be engaging and exciting and make sense and not trip over your words, that was very difficult for me. So that was a skill that I definitely built 
this past year that I want to keep building on because I think that was a huge revelation for myself. Well, and that's <laughs> honestly something I really wish we all could take in school is maybe some kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know if it has to be like a stand-up class or a, just an acting 101 class or something. Yeah, something. But I yeah. honestly, because we must talk to our audiences I and especially more so mm-hmm. than I feel like the age of us not talking to our audiences is a bit outdated and yeah. and it's the best way to crowdsource and to build an audience is to actually engage with them verbally mm-hmm. in addition oh, to people love it they want to hear about the musicians they want to hear about the piece or what to listen for yeah so it's just so important and i think you just get such a better response from your audience yeah. So something I might want to shed is almost accepting every opportunity or gig that came to right. me in this past yeah. year. You know, because of COVID, we were not as busy. So every violin and piano student that I was coming to me, I was like, yes, give me work, sure. right? <laughs> and then, you know, every random gig that isn't necessarily super fulfilling, I was also taking, which I'm sure everyone would be doing. Yeah. So yeah, I think once we get back to normal, I will be a little more selective in how I spend my time to make sure that I am busy, but also have time for relaxation and making sure I'm rested and happy. Yeah, that's great. Having a work-life balance isn't something necessarily emphasized in our line of work. Mm-mm. So Not at all. I think it's great whenever we are able to find that balance or find that what that means to us, because of course that's different for everyone. Yeah. yeah, and you have to have things outside of being in the practice room that make you happier a different outlet like for you baking (laughs) yes sometimes (laughs) (laughs) yes natalie are there any platforms or websites for our listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects Yes, my website is nataliegainer.com and I have two Instagrams that are my own personal things. Nataru, which is N-A-T-A-R-O-0-O and then Shot by Nataru, which is also O-0-O but that one's my photography page where you can see headshots and portraits of mostly musicians and some other fun things as Mm -hmm. well. Porch concerts, you could follow Tunes on 10th that's the number one zero tunes on 10. Okay. I also have, <laughs> I have five Instagram accounts <laughs> on my phone. Sorry. I didn't mean to <laughs> out you like that. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people. Okay. But I also run the social media for HGO orchestra, which is HGO underscore orchestra and Houston ballet orchestra. So, you know, you can follow all five accounts and give me a whole bunch of follows. Yay. Absolutely. Yay. Okay, and if you enjoyed listening, be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning into this podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it, too. It doesn't need to be long. Your review will help others search for the podcast because of its crazy algorithms, and you'll make Sushi's day. And it's free. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well. If you want to level up, you can always become part of the Hidden Behind the Music Stand family by donating what you will on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hide and music stand our social media handle for facebook instagram and twitter is at hide and music stand and we'd love to hear from you at our email hide and music stand at gmail.com didn't recognize a piece we discussed during the episode no worries there's a spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience the link is in the description of each episode thank you so much natalie for joining me on the show today it's so good to see your face again you too thank you so much for having me on your podcast yeah. i am honored oh well The pleasure is all mine. And thanks for listening. Sushi, say bye.